0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we are asking whether advisors and their clients need to start preparing for higher inflation. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. A combination of positive vaccine news and the election of Joe Biden as US President led to a rally in the types of stocks that typically benefit from higher growth and higher inflation. But after more than a decade where inflation was the dog that didn't bark in markets, is it finally time for clients' to position for a significant change and for inflation to rise starkly? Joining me today to discuss the topic are Herod Lines, Chief Economic Strategist at discretionary fund management firm NetWealth, Phil Smeaton, Chief Investment Officer at advice firm Sanlam, and Simon Edelston, Global Equity Fund Manager at Artemis. Thank you all for joining me. During a decade or so from the end of the global financial crisis to the start of the pandemic, we had record low interest rates in most of the developed world, virtually full employment, and markets generally performed well. But inflation remained low despite all of those conditions. If we now do get a pickup in inflation, what would that mean for asset prices? If we start with you, Phil. Hi, David. Yeah, this is a key focus for us. Um,
1: When will inflation pick up and and what will the journey be there? At the moment, asset prices generally are very elevated and valuations are high. So while we might say there hasn't been much inflation in terms of consumer price inflation, we have seen a lot of inflation in in the money supply. And if we look at the US dollar as an example, there are 30% more dollars in existence now than they were pre-COVID. So a lot of people have received this new money. Um, Some people have received it through stimulus checks that have come in the post. Other people have received it through not having to pay back loans or deference of of payments. Uh, And people have spent it. Uh, Things have inflated, bond prices have inflated, equity prices have inflated. We've seen food prices and agricultural prices recently inflated, metals, commodities, and precious metals have inflated. CPI is very much the last thing to to inflate there. Now, what hasn't inflated, as I said, is CPI. And financial markets at the moment are buoyant on the fact that interest rates are zero for as long as the eye can see. Now, the thing that upsets the narrative or or upsets the apple cart is what if the Fed was forced to raise interest rates? And that's a key focus for the market because it puts valuations at risk. Uh, And it would mean mean that the valuations for both bonds and equities would likely to come down as the market would expect, higher cost of capital, higher interest rates. So that's the the quick answer there.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that, Phil. Uh, Simon, we've had a a decade where some parts of the equity universe went up quite a lot and some hardly rose at all. Are we on the cusp of this great rotation that I've uh, heard about as long as I've been doing this job? And if so, what would that mean for asset prices? Yeah, so as
2: you say, David... um... Although inflation expectations have risen recently, and and this is troubled bond markets, equity markets have carried on shooting up. Uh, They had a good year global equity markets have carried on shooting up. Um, European and UK ones had quite a tricky time last year. But even after this recent rotation after Biden's election and, and the vaccine news, and people starting to think about stimulus, equity markets reached all-time highs in the face of of on markets starting to discount a bit more inflation. So I would have thought that the, the easy thing to say is last year's market, as you said, was very focused on a fairly small part of global equities, really led by American technology companies. A lot of the rest of the world missed out. The world we're looking at for the year coming up, hopefully, we'll see a more broad recovery across a broader range of sectors. And then the key thing will be to try to pick stocks within those sectors which can cope with more inflation. Now, going back to the 1970s, of course, you know, that was a shocking year for all asset investors and particularly a shocking period for equity investors. So there are still a few people around who remember how much money you can lose when inflation goes from very, very low to even up a little bit, let alone up as much as it went up then. But I would say valuations from where we're starting now are much lower than they were then. This may seem odd to people, but actually, UK equities, for instance, traded on key multiples in the high 20s there. They're in the around 15 now. And secondly, most companies are much better set up to cope with inflation than they were. But some are and some aren't. And you know, one has to think about each company one owns and how it would cope with a little bit more inflation. Some will do fine. Others will struggle.
0: Thank you um, and Jared, as I um, alluded to in my introduction, despite on the surface economic conditions for many years seeming to be those that would engender higher inflation with record low interest rates, full employment and GDP growth, etc, it never really came through and um, are there reasons to believe that it really could be different this time, and um, if so? How do you see the markets reacting? So many people in the markets have been preparing for or talking about inflation for so long. If it actually happens now, is the world ready?
3: Yeah, uh, well, it's a great pleasure to be on this call. Um, In terms of the question, um, I expect headline inflation globally to remain relatively low over coming decades. So I think the structural changes that have contributed to low inflation in recent decades will remain in place. But notwithstanding that, Naturally, because we're in an exceptional situation with the pandemic, there's always the possibility that there could be a temporary spurt of inflation. But coming to your question, it's very much a case of when one looks at inflation and if there's an inflation fear out there, is it about global inflation or is it particular to one or two countries? Also, Simon touched on this in terms of the 1970s. If there was to be inflation, is it to be an inflation environment similar to the 70s when? we had stagflation, weak growth, low inflation? Or would it be more likely to be, as the markets seem to be assuming, a reflationary environment where higher inflation went hand in hand with higher growth? And then coming back to Phil's initial starting point, how would it impact the whole policy environment? My feeling is that the structural factors that have contributed to low inflation over the last decade or so remain in place. The the declining share of wages in terms of, Overall national income, that might have run its course. But the other features, such as globalization and the difficulties for firms to sort of push up prices, that remains in place. Technological change and innovation, that remains in place. And that continues to sort of reinforce competitive elements. And even though the markets tend to sort of think higher inflation might be a good thing, there was an interesting sort of analysis done for the Jackson Hole gathering of central bankers last August or so that suggested the general public saw anything that led to higher inflation as being just a bad thing. And I tend to think that inflationary expectations still remain embedded at low levels, largely because many people, particularly in Western economies, have not enjoyed high wage growth in recent decades. And therefore, they tend to see anything that threatens the wage growth being further impeded by higher inflation as a bad thing. But just to conclude, we have undoubtedly seen unconventional monetary policy in the last decade that has led to asset price inflation at the same time as headline inflation remaining low. And now in this crisis, we're seeing, in addition to uh, unconventional monetary policy, we're seeing unconventional fiscal policy. So there's no doubt that markets are in an environment where they are factoring in very many different possible scenarios and therefore there is a genuine inflation fear in the near term because the markets think there could be a rebound in demand at the same time the supply bottlenecks appearing but the further ahead one looks beyond that rebound post the pandemic i still tend to think structural features will keep inflation in check
0: thank you jared and i mean i guess maybe it it follows on then to, to stay with you for the next question Do you feel that the markets have started to become too optimistic, that they've started to price in this scenario of significantly higher growth and significantly higher inflation into the share prices of companies such as materials or oils, et cetera? Is, Is that the worry now, that the market's got ahead of itself?
3: Yeah, well, one needs to differentiate between the equity markets that you're touching on and the bond markets where yields are at incredibly low levels, and that also naturally in In terms of both sets of markets, or indeed all markets, is against the backdrop of what people think will happen to policy. I don't think there's going to be any rush by central banks to um, correct or unwind the unconventional monetary policies that are currently in place. In terms of fiscal policies, um, I think governments are unlikely to prematurely tighten fiscal policy. But what one sees when coming to your question, where is the growth profile? We are currently in a global health crisis that's led to a global economic crisis. So we need to come out of the health crisis and the markets are assuming that will happen this year thanks to the vaccine. Then the global economic crisis, the markets are assuming will start to be unwound. And then there will be a strong, it's assumed, pick up in global activity. And I think that's right. I think there will be a strong global recovery in the second half of this year and into next year. And markets are therefore right on the equity side to assume that. And also I think bond markets are right to assume that in that environment, central banks will still keep monetary policy very accommodated. The question is whether those structural features that I alluded to in the previous question, whether they continue to remain in place or whether the rebound we see this time post the crisis starts to lead to a change in those fundamental sort of economic drivers. And. I think this crisis clearly will change things. I tend to think it's the three Gs, grassroots, green and geopolitics. But at the same time, I do feel that many of the features that were in place pre this pandemic and which contributed to low inflation will remain in place, namely the fourth industrial revolution technological change and that shift in the global balance of power towards the Indo-Pacific with the rise of not just China, but other emerging economies. So uh, markets, I don't think I've been too optimistic. I still think equities are right to assume a rebound. And I think it's premature to talk about bond yields rising significantly, as some people are alluding
0: to. Thank you. Um, Simon, I know as as an equity guy, you reach for the garlic when bonds are mentioned. But um, in in your world, um, we've seen, as I say, oil company shares have, have gone up, despite the fact that Oil was declared dead at points last year. Uh, company shares have gone up. Even, dare I say, financials are starting to do a little bit better. As an equity guy, are those the areas that are interesting you? Or do you think optimism is trumping reality right now, if you're pardoned upon?
2: As I said before, last year was an extraordinary year, obviously, for economies. Basically, a state-led crash led by um, lockdown. So, a sort of economic crash that we've never seen before. And that led equity markets to being extremely narrow, very focused just on technology, shares really doing well. So any sort of normalization, any sort of broadening out of economic growth, economic recovery will probably lead to a broader range of equities doing well than did well last year. And recovery would certainly suggest that there's a justification in banks being slightly more expensive, mining shares being slightly more expensive particularly things like copper mines, which are essential for a part of any renewable green policies out there, which is the bulk of the stimulus. But just going back in general to the point uh, Gerard raised just now, the thing that we're told by central banks, and it's a good idea not to argue with them, is that they're going to keep interest rates low for a long time. The way in which they see sorting out economies is by stimulating growth, not by worrying about inflation. For those of us very long in the teeth, you sort of think, you know, be careful what you wish for. Are you entirely sure you keep inflation under control if it overshoots? But I think at the moment the signals certainly from the American side are they're not going to put up rates even if they see quite a high, um, quite an increase in signs of inflation coming through. And then uh, the last point I throw in here is the regional inflation pressures are very, very different and they're likely to remain very different. Europe carries on with a declining population. Uh, Very low fertility rates, so very few people going into the workforce, and quite a high level of unemployment coming out of um, last year's pandemic. So, the likelihood of wage inflation, you just take the UK, what's the chance of wage inflation in the UK at the moment? Precious little, unless you're in a very, very specific area like IT services, because there are plenty of people looking for work. Now, in America, that situation may well reverse rather more quickly. Uh, That economy very often bounces back from uh, crises rather more rapidly than European economies do, and of course the Asian economy has never really had much of a slowdown last year. And strangely enough, in Asia, where ag- even agricultural prices haven't actually gone up very much, so Chinese inflation, for instance, which is probably the world's most vigorous economy at the moment, having ironically having dealt with COVID very quickly, uh, but Chinese although Chinese growth is very high, Chinese inflation is very very low. Uh, so it is very patchy. Um we're just focusing on the prospect of it overshooting in America more than anything else. But uh, going with Gerald's line, if, if the growth is there, as equity investors, we adjust for it in our valuation modeling. And, and it doesn't lead us to sell American shares.
0: Thank you, Simon. And um, Phil, as an asset allocator, a world in which... Equity markets are hitting new highs and bond yields are hitting record lows. Isn't really uh, isn't really the ideal place for you guys? How do you cope with that? And if we do get a change around where yield rises or equities fall, or the inverse of that, what will that mean for for you and for Sunlam's uh, clients?
1: Yeah, it is difficult from a multi asset point of view because many asset classes uh, are set to deliver very poor returns. Uh, the, the standout one really being government bonds, where your potential return is is pretty much zero. You know, you, you might get some positive return if negative interest rates. I know the Bank of England has been playing around with the mechanics of that to, to see if they can get that to work. But the core expectation would have to be you know, a zero yield to maturity. There, you're not—you're hardly going to get anything. So, people have made the rational decision to sell those instruments and to invest in corporate debt. And we have—we have quite strong you know, economic growth potential as we go into the recovery. So, that should fare well for corporates. That should make corporates, um, you know, a fairly solid credit risk. Uh, And by buying shorter-dated corporate debt, you can mitigate a lot of the risks of potentially rising rates down the line. So you can take some of that off the table. But it doesn't get away from the fact that, you know, credit spreads, even in the high-yield market, are kind of around 4%. Now, there's precedent for them to go lower. Um, When we had, you know, exceptionally accommodative monetary policy in 2002 to two thousand and four. Uh, high-yield spreads eventually moved down to only 2%. So these things can continue to get squeezed. Um, But it very much means that equities are kind of the only game in town to deliver any real returns in the longer term. But the risk you're running there is that valuation risk, which is elevated, uh, and that's fine so long as central banks' hands aren't forced, and what would force them to raise rates, interest rate, that inflation moving higher. So we live in this world where you effectively have to take equity risk to get a half decent return. And any talk in markets about tapering or about the Federal Reserve taking their foot off the accelerator, you know that would cause a wobble in markets, but that would be a wobble that you'd probably want to buy. Because what would happen is just as in 2018, uh, when the Federal Reserve reversed policy pretty sharply at the end of the year, and it was clear that they were going to cause a recession, you would have them back off again, um, as we saw in the taper tantrum in 2013. Now they would back off. So, if interest rates start to rise uh, in, in the bond markets, the Federal Reserve will come out and they will talk them down, and they will do what's needed to to keep them low. They can do that so long as CPI inflation remains below two percent, and until you get above that point. Really, I think we're in this kind of status quo for a period of time. Now, it, it took a decade for us to get off zero yields the last time we, we came down here. And we managed to get off for maybe a year, maybe two years. Uh, and now we're back here. So, you know, we don't really know when the timing of this might be forced. Uh-huh. It could be five years in the future, or maybe it could be a couple of years as the economy reopens from COVID. Um, it's just something to, to keep an eye out for. It's, it's a risk of valuations more than anything else.
0: Simon, you've mentioned in all of your answers um, being long in the tooth and how you've been in the markets for 150 years, but I know it's only 100. But bearing all of that in mind, um, can can we be confident, given the points that yourself and and Gerard have made and to try and bring a couple of them together – Can we be confident that in a world with all of this uh, disruption and technological change and unique circumstances such as demographics, as you touched on, can we be confident that if we do get a pickup in inflation, that it will be the same assets that benefit this time as benefited uh, the many other times that we've had a pickup in inflation, such as mining and oil, et cetera? Or could it be that it plays into the market in a very different way? Um, Well, I'd say... um History, history is one of the only really helpful guides
2: to anything in equity fund management. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in just reading the history books, going back and seeing what worked and what didn't work, and then trying to think: is there anything different this time? So, in the 1970s, certainly you wanted to be in, you wanted to have a certain amount of your portfolio in real assets. Obviously, oil stocks did very well there, but you know the oil price went up all decades, and also nickel companies did very well, copper price did very well. So holding real assets as part of your portfolio work then, I can't see any obvious reason not to have a part of one's portfolio in that sort of thing today, copper stocks in particular, as I've mentioned. There aren't very many of them. That's a problem. Quite difficult to find good quality mining companies with good ESG credentials and so on and so forth, but they are, they're out there. One of the lesser-known things about the 1970s, if you take the UK equity market, is one of the best-performing shares in UK equities during that decade was Rakel, an out-and-out growth stock. (laughs) That was regarded as a go-faster tech stock of its day. So this perception that rising inflation periods is bad for growth stocks is not always true. If you've got a company that's growing very fast and has very decent return on capital, and doesn't owe the bank any money, it's probably in a better position with good products, good pricing parents, probably better in a position than an old fashioned company on a low multiple. So, you know, and where we disagree with a lot of commentators at the moment about the risk of higher inflation or even the reality of higher inflation, we don't predict much higher inflation. We don't we don't agree with the conclusion people are reaching, which is we want to go off and buy stocks on low PEs or or a lot of financials, financials in particular, did extraordinarily badly in the 1970s. You know, there was a secondary bank crisis, Slater-Walker went bust, a load of property companies went bust. So some of the things that people are reading in history is just not even right in history. And then, you, as you say, we also live in this period of amazing technology change and, and rapidly. Uh, most of the growth companies out there are relying on cheaper computing power more powerful computers for their new products Uh, and you know so there's a broad range of rakel type companies to invest in the question is can you find ones which are on sensible multiples because a lot of them went up a lot last year Um, but again if you look around the world you don't have to invest in you know it's not only america which has technology stocks and, and we find good better value technology stocks places like japan places in asia the semiconductor companies in the far east in particular are the the world leaders and they're seeing demand rocketing through and they have enormous pricing power so you know the equity market's a vast space it's you know it's very diverse and and again one can balance portfolios out on any scenario really to try to make sure that you've got some eggs in different baskets to cope with a a rather rather different macro background
0: thank you phil i guess one of the uh, points that, that Simon is, is touching on is this uh, age-old question in equity markets of uh, growth versus value, and I'm sure you've only been asked about it about 100 times a week for the last bit <laughs> but is this the time when when those value stocks, many of which, as Simon mentioned, in history are supposed to do well when we have higher inflation? Is this their time to shine, Phil?
1: Yeah, I, I often say there's, there's a difference between value and dumb value because Anyone can take last year's earnings number and divide it by price and get an earnings yield or get a price to earnings if you do it the other way around. Really, value is what am I buying here? What does this company need to achieve in its business plan in order that the cash flows that it's going to generate are going to be worth something to me and how much am I paying for that? And sometimes value can be found in businesses that have maybe slightly higher PE multiples, but where there's a you know, reasonable certainty that they can be able to deliver that earnings growth uh, and deliver the profits to, to shareholders. So, you know, just if, if all you do is find the stocks out there, you'll probably find a lot of value tracks. But if instead you try to look for good companies which you think can deliver on their business plan and buy those where the prices is, is more in line with your intrinsic value estimate then i think you've got a lot better chance so i think value is all that you should look for but just blindly buying the cheapest stocks out there in the hope that those businesses won't get disrupted can be quite risky
0: thank you jared the um the i suppose orthodoxy would be that if we get higher in inflation uh government bonds uh, get a pasting and uh those Certain types of equities uh, do very well. Could it be different this time? And what about, I suppose, the uh, the broader palette of uh, real asset? There are real asset funds out there. There are well individual equities out there. Is the answer to look beyond traditional asset allocation? Or if we don't get the inflation, we don't need to?
3: Yeah. Um, it's different this time are the most dangerous words often to tell investors or to actually think about in looking at the markets. I think the important thing is to restate the starting position. In the low inflation environment, we have low inflation, low rates and low yields. And while that's been good for asset prices generally, it does mean that markets are not pricing for risk. And then the challenge for investors or savers is that in the search for yields, they have to naturally take on more risk. So it's a backdrop that while it's very conducive to markets, it does present some big challenges. Now, in terms of your question, yeah, if we were to have a pickup in inflation, to reiterate the points we've made earlier, the question is whether it's a pickup to, say, low inflation of, say, a couple of a percent, or whether it's a much higher rate of inflation. Markets, I think, would be quite content if we had, say, nominal GDP growth, where we had real growth of 2% and inflation of 2%. You get overall nominal growth in the economy of 4%. I think that's a backdrop where, both bonds and equities would actually be seen in a very constructive light by most investors. Now, if we had a much bigger pickup in inflation, then yes, coming back to your question, you would have the traditional investments such as commodities and properties, and Simon touched on this, as benefiting. But also one has to ask, post-pandemic, will things be different? For instance, um, the grassroots, the sort of aspect, where more things are done locally, where some of the supply chains change, that might start to also impact the whole concept of where people work, and that might start to impact the whole concept about how you value property and commercial property in particular coming out of this crisis. Then on the commodity side, while the backdrop we're talking about is one that's conducive to commodities doing well, an important post-pandemic aspect and it's a good thing, is a greater focus on the green agenda. How will that also impact the way in which we look at commodity investments and companies that are linked into the commodity cycle? So there will be different aspects to this post-cycle recovery just because of some of the things that do change because of the pandemic and the way in which investors' behaviour and attitudes will change. But overall, yeah, if we have a pickup of inflation that's mild, then it doesn't pressurize central banks into having to tighten aggressively or prematurely. And also, it's a backdrop where the current overhang of debt, which is something that we haven't really gone into in too much detail yet, the overhang of debt becomes, while still a concern, less of a concern, because debt-to-GDP ratios can start to fall more gradually. So it's an environment where, yeah, some of the traditional in hedges against inflation and some of the traditional uh, investments that do well in the inflation environment will naturally do well if we see inflation pick up. But there will be, as I've touched on, slight differences this time.
0: Thank you for that, Jared. And I suppose to, to follow up on that, really, uh, you, you mentioned this concept of grassroots. One of the reasons for uh, inflation perhaps staying quite low for, for so long was that, China, as it emerged as an economy, effectively exported deflation or disinflation around the world. I know you're on the bank, you're on the board of the Bank of China, if I remember correctly. But if that changes uh, this time, if either the Chinese economy moves in a way where they're adding inflation to the world, or we have this reshoring phenomenon or grassroots, as you call it, and supply chains are more local, and that's more inflationary. What would that mean for the world and, and for asset prices and markets?
3: Yeah. Well, about 20 years ago when China really was taking off, I remember in London market people used to say maybe the CPI index, the consumer price index should be renamed the China price index because China was really exporting deflation to such an extent. Now, the key change in China as a result of this pandemic is a focus on what's called dual circulation. It sounds a bit of a mouthful, but in essence, the Chinese economy is going to focus more on driving domestic demand, moving up the value curve. So in one respect, they will not be exporting deflation in the way in which they did before. But on the flip side, as they move into more the inspiration away from the perspiration economy, they will start to be driving technological change and innovation, which will reinforce those global trends. So that reinforces the competitive element. So it means that China is not a deflationary force as it was in the past, but it also doesn't, on the flip side of that mean that China is an inflationary threat in the way in which some people might fear. Its the economy is changing, but so too is the global economy. And really stepping back for investors, it is moving from that perspiration where demographics were the big driver to the inspiration where the technological change. Clearly, and Simon touched on this on the regional side, Demographics clearly are very different across the world. We have very young populations from Africa coming on. And Africa's working age population is going up by twice that of China and India's in the next 15 years. One of the big questions is whether the sort of deflation element we saw from China in the last two decades will now be seen from other regions such as Africa. The markets tend to think probably not because of the less integration in Africa, But one shouldn't overlook that factor. And obviously, in terms of the investment backdrop, Western Europe is still the slow growth region of the world economy. The continent is a more aging population. The UK is a much younger dynamic. So it becomes a bit complex. But coming back to your question on China, no, China will not be exporting deflation as it has done over the last 20 years or so but I don't think it will become an inflationary threat to the world economy. In fact, it's more likely to be reinforcing competitive pressures as it moves up the value curve.
0: Thank you. Simon, I know you've been uh, quite keen on Asian equities within your global funds for for quite some time. I remember many years ago you telling me about your investments in, in Chinese banks. As a global equity manager, if we do see a different model in China or a different uh, outcome in China. What what would that mean for for what you do and how you see the world and how equity markets would would see the world?
2: Uh, well, Asian equities have had a fine last six months, um, not least because the pandemic's been handled particularly well <laughs> in Asia. Um, there was a rather extraordinary headline. You might have seen it the other day. You know, record high covid um, infections in japan i think it was a thousand people infected you know we have a thousand people infected every day here rather than ever so covid numbers are very very low the economies have chugged along very nicely most of our exposure is in um, the stocks that we really like are, are automation companies and this comes back actually to the supply dynamics that although the number of people going into the workforce in china is starting to slow down that isn't really the Chinese issue anymore. The speed with which China and other Southeast Asian companies are introducing advanced automation into their production lines will drive up productivity and may keep that deflationary issue going for longer than people think. We've just had The world's second biggest robot maker, Yaskawa, had had results a couple of days ago. They were well ahead of anything the market expected, and they're saying they've got orders for automation devices going out two, three years now. So the next wave, the wave we're coming into of recovery uh, and the stimulus packages out there are encouraging people to automate, one, to get productivity down, two, in some cases, to not be so reliant on labor. And thirdly, uh, in a number of cases, to have a more diversified supply chain rather than relying too much on China. There is this other theme, particularly with American companies, that they want to have a supply base in uh, Vietnam or in uh, Thailand or Indonesia as well as China. They don't want to get caught up in a trade war again, not not if they're asking. So, yeah, we think automation is, is one of the big winners out of this. Um, a number of the stocks have moved a little way, but the news coming through in that sector is, is fantastic. There is, by the way, just one little thing that I might throw back in. Um, amongst the four of us, I don't think there are any dedicated monetarists here um, because a dedicated monetarist, by the way, wouldn't worry about all this supply constraint stuff or whether people are going to spend the money in, the, in their pocket. They just point to the money supply growth particularly in Europe and America, this massive, massive, simultaneous expansion of money and of fiscal policy. And they say, this is inflationary, whatever else is happening out here. Now, uh, uh, you know, this is certainly stuff that was taught at university in my day. Uh, it, it, it's notable how much quieter the monetarists are. But the monetarists would just say, we've never seen an expansion like this. And so inflation won't just go up 2 or 3%. It'll overshoot. Now there aren't many monetarists around, but there are a few still who, who who run with this rather equation-driven version of the world. I certainly don't take that view. I just think that people got such a shock last year; it'll take a long time for them to want to spend the money that's in circulation. But the fact is, there is a lot of money in circulation, and so one shouldn't ignore that issue.
0: Thank you, Simon. I know you don't run your your global equity mandate uh, specifically with with income in mind, but um, you've had to. Contend with that um, dilemma that it was the low yielders that went up most. Expect that change, and what would that mean for for your clients? Well, certainly, it's 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 good to see the year where a lot of
2: large companies reviewed their dividends, cut their dividends behind us. Um, so there were a lot of dividend cuts in in the UK last year. Um, mostly from companies and sectors that we thought would have to review them at some point in the oil sector, the financial sector, they were going to have, they're going to struggle last year. Uh, so that's behind us. Uh, most of it was in Europe. Um, and you look at the yields left on these um, equity markets for the year coming up. They're quite attractive, certainly compared with bonds. So you know, the consensus is the UK equities yield 3% this year. Um, other European markets, two and a half percent for the DAX. You know, two percent for uh, the French market, and of course, you know those markets whose ten-year bonds have negative returns. Uh, so it's an argument for equities. But yeah, I mean, I I would, as ever, say, look at the whole company, make sure it's got proper cash flow, make sure it's growing. The very highest stocks tend to be declining companies these days uh, so um, you're better off aiming for a yield around three percent which of course in real terms is, is, is a very decent yield indeed rather than venturing off into the stocks yielding a lot more than that e- even the japanese equity market these days has plenty of stocks yielding three and four percent with uh, very strong balance sheets so um, it, 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 the other thing i think would be to source one's income from a variety of different economies which may enjoy different recovery this year and certainly might spread your risk of uh, having too much money in one economy, which sees a lot of inflation is generally bad for income stocks, by the way, because of course the real return disappears because the inflation takes it away.
0: Thank you Simon. Um Gerard do you want to um do you want to come in on that? Um, obviously, mean Net obviously Netwealth are a discretionary investment management firm so uh, I presume there are income clients on the on the roster there as with everybody else and how have they and, and you thought about this balance between um uh, getting things that have a yield and getting things that don't.
3: Yeah, well we've been uh, well thanks for the plug but uh, it, we've been very pleased with how our different portfolios have performed and again it's up to the individual investor whether they want to take on low risk or go high risk but a very diversified balanced portfolio across the different spectrums tends to work very well. I think what's been challenging is over the last few decades, challenging not for us but in terms of the markets, is at different times people have been trying to call the end for instance of the low bond yield environment or the end of the growth cycle versus the value cycle. And when one steps back, and I think if I could finish, it comes on to the question of policy that you touched on. And Simon touched on it in terms of monetary policy, and Phil began our discussion by alluding to how much balance sheets have gone up from central banks. Monetary policy is critical. Last decade, we've seen unconventional monetary policy. That was not just low rates, but quantitative easing. This cycle has seen the continuation of that. But while we haven't seen headline inflation pick up, central bank policy has contributed to asset price inflation. And it was very interesting last autumn at the IMF meetings, the IMF pointed out that from the beginning of this crisis, so it was only a six-month period, if one looked at um, bond issuance, how much of that bond issuance had been acquired by central banks. It was 50% in the UK. It went up to the high 70% on the continent in the euro area and in Japan. So when we look ahead, it's not only the questions you've asked about, it's how we exit from unconventional monetary policy and unconventional fiscal policy. And getting that balance right is not only going to drive markets, but it's going to be determined by the growth inflation mix that we've been talking about. Overall, I would say at net wealth we're pretty constructive about the growth outlook. We expect inflation to remain low, but there is no doubt that we're gonna see volatility on the inflation front over the next year or two, just because of the way things are going to rebound in different countries and given some of the supply shocks we've seen. But overall, while we shouldn't underestimate the inflation risk, I think we need to keep it in context.
0: Thank you, Jared. And thank you all for joining me today. Phil Smeaton, Chief Investment Officer at Sanlam, Simon Edelston, Global Equity Fund Manager at Artemis, and Jared Lyons, Chief Economic Strategist at NetWealth. Thank you all for joining me and tune in next week for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast.